you know, knowing about something or having heard about something and actually experiencing that something physically are totally different things, aren't they? You ever had something like that in your life that you, you'd heard about it, you knew about it, but then you experienced it. It was totally different. You ever had one of those things in your life that when you experience it, it just changes you fundamentally. It changes you systemically. It changes uh, you at the core. The, 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 the life-shaping moments that happen in your life. I had one of those moments um, about seven years ago when I had my daughter. Uh, you know, I'd always heard about having a child. I'd always heard about being a dad. I, I, I sort of had an idea in my head about what I thought it would be like to be a parent. You know, I'd always heard, oh, you have this special love for your kids. And, um, and, and I'm like, yeah, 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 okay, sure, sure, sure. Um, but that, that, uh, that night, I think it was like two in the morning or something, when my little daughter, Myla, came into this world and um, with all of this hair, and she was just this chubby little Eskimo baby. Way, way, she looked like a toddler. She was way too big uh, to be a newborn. And, and I held her for the first time. And I am not an emotional person, but man, my, my eyes began to weep, and I was overcome with joy. I just couldn't believe how much love I had for this little person. And it's funny because no matter what uh, anyone would have told me about being a father, it just wouldn't have actually explained what it was like until I actually had a kid. Have you ever had an experience like that in your life? No one could have really prepared you for it. No one could have really explained it to you. And, and at the end of the day, what really allowed me to realize it was the physicality of it, was experiencing it. It wasn't just hearing about it or talking about it. It was experiencing it and being there presently. The resurrection is a hands-on encounter. It's a hands-on event. And the resurrection uh, was and is the paramount feature of the Christian message. And for the disciples, the resurrection was not an idea. It was not a hallucination. It was not a philosophy. It was not intangible. It was not unreal. It was a provable, personal, powerful encounter with a provable, personal, powerful, real, physical, tangible Jesus. And it was so profound that the disciples were never the same. There is a moment where the disciples, the followers of Christ, had a drastic transformation. And that, that moment is when the power of the resurrection was fully realized. Something changed. These disciples, both men and women, this kind of rabble of nobodies, this rabble of, of tax collectors and fishermen and um, in, in and women and just, just a group of, of random people went from being um, a group that followed around a, a popular teacher to being the catalyst of a movement that has completely changed the world. I mean, within 200 years, the Roman Empire was a Christian nation. Now, now say what you want about the, the orthodoxy of their belief, but the reality was that the gospel exploded, and it exploded because of one event, the resurrection. Because something happened. Now, every Easter, if you guys come to church, you hear about the resurrection. Uh, I actually saw a really funny cartoon that I was going to show you guys, but I forgot, um, that had a, a picture of somebody leaving church, and he said, you know, Pastor, you're kind of in a rut. You preach the same sermon every time I'm here. Uh, which, of course, the joke is you only come to church on Easter. You know, that's funny. But, which is fine. You know, it's not really fine. We'd, we'd rather you come more, but that's okay. Uh, regardless, Easter, you've, you've heard this before, is the time where we celebrate the resurrection, and the resurrection is important. But why is it so important? Why is it such a big deal? Why, why did the resurrection have this ability to change the disciples and transform them? 
What is it about the resurrection? Now, I want to make a promise to you, and it's not really my promise. It's the promise that the Bible makes, and that is that if you truly and understand, truly understand and truly believe in the power of the resurrection, it will change you. It will transform you. But listen to me. This is important. I'm not talking about some kind of trip. I'm not talking about some kind of out-of-body experience. I'm not talking about some kind of philosophy or feeling or, or, or whatever. I'm talking about a tangible experience with a real, listen, real, real, real physical Jesus that has really resurrected. Okay, in John, uh, in the, the epistle of John, he, he writes and opens up his epistle later on in life, sometime after he recorded the events we're going to look at, and this is what he has to say. He says in, in 1 John 1, 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus, That's what, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, in case there's any mistaking, that which we have looked upon, that which we have touched physically with our hands concerning the word of life, talking about Jesus, the life was manifested and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen, which we have heard. Do you think it's important that John gets you to understand that this was a physical encounter? That this was a real encounter? That they really saw him? This we proclaim to you that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What John is saying is this whole resurrection thing, it's real. We felt it. We saw it. We experienced it. It's not some weird metaphysical trip. It wasn't a trick. It was real. And it was so real. And it was so tangible that it changed these guys for. Ever. So this morning, our question is, what is it about the resurrection that makes it so powerful? Why is there billions of human beings right now on the earth who are stopping to celebrate? And they may not even realize why, but why are they stopping to celebrate this one event that happened? The single most important moment in human history. Why? What is it about it that's so powerful? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what I want you to examine with me this morning. I want you to see what it looks like to encounter the resurrection of Christ through the eyes of those that first did it. And this is what's so cool about John's account. is In John chapter 20, we literally get to see the first time that the disciples, that his followers, Mary, Peter, John, real people, these are not made up characters. Real people encountered the real resurrected Jesus. And, and what it was that, that they learned when they encountered him that changed and transformed them forever. So this morning, I'm, I'm going to hopefully not do too much talking and hopefully do a lot of reading because I want you to see the story. And I want you to see that this is real life. And this is what it looks like to encounter a resurrected Jesus. So if you're one of those people like me that likes to take notes and you want a little bit of an outline, this morning we are going to see, or I need you to see the resurrected Jesus as five things. I need you to see the resurrected Jesus as five things. I'll give them to you all right now, and then we'll kind of ping them as we go through the text. I need you to see the resurrected Jesus as physical, personal, powerful, pivotal, and provable. If you can see and understand those five things about the resurrection, then I truly believe it has the power to transform your life. Amen? Let's see those five things. John chapter 20. 
And before we dig into the text, I need to set the stage because uh, we didn't really do a Good Friday service here. Uh, we went out and joined our friends out at, at Heritage, our sending church. But normally what would happen on Easter week is last Sunday we would celebrate, um, and we did celebrate the, um, the Palm Sunday, the moment that Jesus comes into Jerusalem uh, and, he, and the, he's received by this massive crowd. And then by Friday the one that they're all excited about, the one that everyone's cheering for, the one that everyone's saying Hosanna for, by Friday night, he's dead. This is the story arc, and this is the point in the story arc where all hope is lost. You ever watch any movie, any good movie, any movie that's worth its salt, has a moment where there is no hope, right? It's a moment where everything's gone wrong. The relationship was promising, and then they blew it. They found out the secret identity. Turns out she's an ogre. She's not a princess, right? Whatever the story is. I don't know why Shrek just came into my mind, but whatever. That's the one that popped in. Okay, pick any story. Any story, any good story has a story arc. In any good story arc, there's a moment of disparity. This is the moment of disparity here in John chapter 19 where the one they've been following for three years, the one that they've been looking to, the one that, that, that seemed to be the promised Messiah is dead. The hero is dead. Imagine how the disciples are feeling. Imagine the despair. What do we do? Where do we go? What do we say? How do we react to this? Do we just go back to the way things were before Jesus came into the picture? The Romans killed Jesus. And our religious leaders made them do it. What do we do with this? This is where we puncture into the narrative here in chapter 20, verse 1. Let's pick it up. Now, on the first day, that Sunday of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. You guys remember Mary, one of the followers of Christ, this young woman who literally was possessed, was controlled by demons, who was set free by Christ. She had this profoundly and powerful and unique relationship with Jesus, her Lord. So Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, why is Mary at the tomb? What is she doing there? What's going on? Well, first of all, they weren't able to do the burial uh, preparations because it had just been Sabbath. So first thing, Monday morning after Sabbath, she, she, or Sunday morning, pardon me, she shows up to the tomb in order to dress the body of her Lord. Now, why is she doing this? She's doing this because this is all that she has left. See, Jesus was her everything. Jesus was the one that set her free from everything that she struggled with. Jesus was the object of her affection. He was everything in her world, and now he's gone. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what you would do? You know, it's, it's funny. When you go through a serious loss, when you lose something that's very, very valuable to you, the first thing that you want to go do is you want to salvage anything that's left of them. First thing I did when my dad passed away is I wanted to look at pictures. I wanted to remember. So Mary's just lost her Lord. He's gone. And the first thing she wants to do to, the, to go to the tomb and respect his body because that's all that she has left. And imagine how she's feeling the moment she gets there in order to respect this body and the body is gone. It's gone. So she ran and she sees that the stone had been taken away from the tomb and she instantly runs and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples uh, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now just notice this, just a side note. Mary doesn't even have an inkling that Jesus is resurrected. Isn't that interesting? There was no expectation of a resurrected Jesus. Did you know that? 
And that's partly how we know that there's some real credibility to the resurrection. The disciples didn't think this up. This wasn't wishful thinking. They weren't expecting it. Mary thought someone took his body. That's what she thought. Someone has taken the body of my Lord, the last thing that I have that I can do to worship this man, and it's gone. What am I going to do? She goes and she tells Peter and John, and Peter run to the scene. So Peter went out with the other disciple, John, And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. And I love this, John notes. But the other disciple outran outran Peter, which is just funny. It's just funny. It's just, John's like, hey, by the way, I'm faster than Peter. You know, just so you know. He reached the tomb first. So John gets there first. And stooping to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John, this is, this is a, a rich man's tomb. It was the Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And you would have had to stoop to look down into it. And when you look down into it, you would have seen in the dark a bench at the back where they would have laid the body. So John, he doesn't just jump right in. He stops, he stoops, he looks in, and he sees Jesus' grave cloths laying there, neatly folded. It's very interesting. He stooped to look down. He saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, classic Peter here, following him, went into the tomb immediately. Peter doesn't even think about it. He just lumbers right into the tomb, right? He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, had not, um, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, why is John making a point about that? Why is, why is John making a point about the linen cloths? Why is that a big deal? Why is that worth mentioning? Well, it's proof that someone didn't rob the tomb. Okay? If someone robbed the tomb, by the way, this isn't like some nice robe. This is like wrappings that would have been bloody and uh, probably wouldn't have been very pleasant. If someone was going to rob the body, they would have just took the body. But instead, the cloths are sitting there as though they've been taken off. And they're sitting there because we know, the reader knows, that Jesus literally stood up unwrapped himself, probably not in a hurry, and he took the time to fold his face covering. What an amazing thing. Now, don't, don't get this twisted, okay? Uh, and this is our first point here. The, the resurrected Jesus, you need to see it as physical. Okay, you need to see the resurrected Jesus as physical. It's not as though Jesus just went Luke Skywalker or um, Star Wars and just disappeared and all of a sudden now he's a glowing person off in the, in the distance. This is a physical resurrection. Jesus didn't disappear and the clothes went, okay. Jesus stood up and unwrapped himself because he's a physically resurrected Lord. It's important to note that. And the other disciples, verse 8, who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet, and then John gives us some commentary here. There's something he wants us to know about this. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture. It's funny that John doesn't say they didn't understand what had happened, which is true. He says they didn't understand what the Bible says. They didn't know their Bibles. If they knew their Bibles, and if they had been listening, Jesus tried to tell them that he was going to die and rise. In fact, he told them multiple times. They were just so thick. They didn't get it. And it's because the the first century Jew, they didn't have a theological paradigm for resurrection. It just wasn't, they they knew there was a resurrection coming in the end times, eschatologically, in the future, but they didn't have an idea that, that, that they they certainly didn't think one person was going to raise, okay? Now they saw Lazarus raised, but Jesus did that, and now Jesus is dead. So they have no idea what's going on, and John makes it clear. But John wants you to know something when he writes this account. He says, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. 
He must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now I want you to think with me this morning, okay? I want you to think with me. Why does it matter that we have a physical resurrection? Does it matter? Do we lose anything? Think about this. Couldn't Jesus have paid for sins and secured your spiritual eternity by going to the cross, dying, and leaving his physical body behind to never come back to it? Couldn't he have ascended to the throne and, and, and been the, the king of heaven and, um, and ruled and reigned and then someday just pulled us along with him into a physical reality? Why did he have to come back physically? Why does that matter? Why is that important? Well, I, I would say it's extremely important. And I would say that for you to really understand the power of the resurrection, you need to understand that it's a physical resurrection, that Jesus came back as a human being. I love how Ray Ortland says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he took his humanity with him. It's profound. You see, uh, when Jesus became a man, he didn't cease to be God. He added humanity to his divinity. You say, that's confusing. I say, I know, okay? I, I know. He added his humanity to his divinity, when he resurrected, he didn't leave it behind. He continued to be God. He never ceased to be God, but when he went to the right hand of the Father, he brought his humanness with him. He is a physically resurrected Jesus. Why does that matter? It matters because without a physical resurrection, there is no physical salvation for a physical universe. The gospel, guys, this is so important. The gospel is not Jesus came to to save us from an evil physical world and to, to pull us into some spiritual floaty world. That's Platonic dualism. That's what the Greeks believed. See, the Greeks believed that physical universe is bad, spiritual, immaterial universe is good. And heaven is about getting away from this icky, evil, broken physical world and getting into the spiritual world. So you have to have spiritual knowledge and have spiritual enlightenment and put this physical stuff behind you. That's not the gospel. A lot of Christians actually talk about Christianity like that. We draw pictures of heaven being some floating cloud. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came to accomplish a physical salvation, to redeem the physical universe, and to come back in a physical body. Because when you resur resurrect, you will come back in a physical body. Why does it matter? Why does it matter, Sam? Who cares? Who cares if it's a physical world or a floating spiritual world? It really matters. Okay, for one, it matters because everything you know and love and hope and everything that's good in your life is physical. Uh, you, your, your kids, the love that you have for your kids, the, the, the experiences you have in your life, the, the adventures that you have had, the memories that you have, those are all in a physical universe. To come in to tell a lost person, hey, get saved so you can leave everything you've ever known and love and go live in some floating cloud world. Is that really exciting? Is that really good news? That's not actually the gospel Jesus preached. The gospel Jesus preached was, I have resurrected so that you can have entrance now into a new 2.0 physical and spiritual world where everything that you love about this world will be there but greater. Your body will be stronger. Death will not be a reality. You will not get sick. It will not wear out. You will have adventure. You will eat food. You will have relationships. You will do great things. You will explore in a physically restored eternal universe. That's the gospel. That's exciting to me. That's exciting. When Jesus resurrected, his, he was the first to enter into this new physical reality. And we follow as his body through. Like a, the tip of a spear popping through a curtain. Jesus' new resurrected life pops into this new world and he brings us into it. 
so exciting. If Jesus just died to save us from the physical world, then everything Jesus made or everything God made was a mistake. God failed when he made creation. He's just going to cook it all so we can go live in spirit land. No, that's not true. God made a physical universe. He didn't mess up when he did that. He's going to redeem a physical universe, and he's doing it physically. Okay? We don't talk about that a lot in Christianity. I don't know why. I don't understand it. To me, it's the most, one of the most exciting features of the gospel. When I die, my spirit will go be with the Lord. But when Jesus comes back and the trumpet sounds, he will rise my body. I will get a new model body that's way stronger, way smarter than this one. And I will live an eternal physical existence with the king on a new heavens and a new earth. Guys, that's so cool. That's what the resurrection means. That's what the resurrection promises. Verse 11. Calm down a little bit. Let's get really excited about this stuff. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Now, these guys don't have a clue about anything I just said, by the way. They don't have a clue what's going on. All they know is the guy they've been following around that was raising dead people and healing people is gone. Mary goes back to the tomb after she alerts the disciples. She, she wept and she stooped to look into the tomb. Why is she looking into the tomb again? She already looked in there. You ever go to the fridge and you open it and there's nothing in there? And you go, ah, whatever. And then you go sit down, you turn your Netflix back on, and you go, ah, I'm still hungry. So you get up and you open the fridge again, thinking maybe you're going to see something different. You ever do that? I do that all the time, you know. And, and magically, you're like, those green olives look a little better than they did the first time. I'm like, yeah, I'll eat those. Okay, whatever. That, that's kind of what Mary's doing. I mean, she's disappointed with the result. She's looked into the tomb, and there's, her, her lore is not there. She goes, she tells Peter and John. She comes back to the tomb, and she's like, well, maybe I'll just take another peek. She takes another peek, and this time, to her surprise, she sees two angels, verse 12, in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, what's up with that? That's weird. Why are two angels sitting at the head and the foot of the seat that Jesus' body was laying? One reason is the Old Testament makes it clear that there needs to be two or more witnesses for anything to be proved. So these are two heavenly witnesses. We have way more than two physical, earthly witnesses, human witnesses to the resurrection, but we have two heavenly witnesses. But there's a more interesting reason here, too. Do you remember in the Old Testament, there was a thing called the mercy seat? The mercy seat was on top. It sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and it was the place of mercy. It was where atoning blood was uh, sprinkled. It was the place where God's mercy met man's sin. And, and, And there was a clean space created for man to be able to coexist with God. It was a place of mercy. And do you remember what was on the mercy seat? Two angels, two cherubim, one at the head, one at the feet. You think that's an accident? Guys, the Bible's so cool. Isn't it so cool? This is the mercy seat. It's the eternal mercy seat. It's the place where God's mercy has met man's sin, and man's sin has been made clean. So cool. I love it. It's just a side note, though. He saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. Verse 13, they said to her, woman, That's not a disrespectful term, by the way. That was an endearing term. It was a respectful term. Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. You know, it's funny at this point, Mary would have settled for a corpse. That's kind of what she was just, her her idea of what what God was going to do was so low. I just want his body. Little did she know (laughs) what she was actually going to get. They've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around. Now, I don't know why she turned around. It must have taken something kind of like a noise maybe or something because she's got two angels sitting in front of her. 
Something makes her turn around. And as she turns around, she sees a person, Jesus, standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, why didn't she know? I don't know. I'll give you a couple possibilities. One reason, Jesus is in his new body. So it probably resembled his old body, but I'm sure, I guarantee he was much better looking. I guarantee you he was much stronger. He didn't have the, the, the wrinkles of worry and anxiety that he had borne. Read Isaiah 53. Jesus had a rough life. You think following God means you don't have a rough life? <laughs> this Jesus, for whatever reason, she doesn't recognize him. And she also doesn't recognize him because she's not expecting to see a resurrected Jesus. She's not even thinking about it. It's not even on her radar. She thinks he's the gardener. She thinks he's the gardener. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same question the angels asked. Whom are you seeking? I love how Jesus plays coy. Isn't that funny? He's so human. He's so human here. He, he, he plays coy, just like he did on the road to Emmaus. Remember when he, he pops up in his resurrected body to these two guys? Hey, what you guys talking about? Like he doesn't know, right? It's so funny. I love it. You know, we think of Jesus as like this dude with an Australian accent who's like walking around and, and he, everything he says is very serious, you know. Uh, yeah, he, was, he was a person. He was a person. As he plays coy with her. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have. I love this. Laid him and I will take him away. Can you picture little Mary throwing Jesus' body over her shoulder and carrying him off? She would have done it. I guarantee it, right? And Jesus said to her, now listen, guys, this is so cool. And Jesus said to her, remember, she doesn't know who he is. Jesus said to her, one word, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. Why did she get it in that moment? Why did she understand? What was it about the way Jesus said her name <clears throat> that made her understand? Well, you know, <clears throat> this idea that, that uh, when Jesus resurrected, he sort of turned into this big angry God again. Um, the reality, like I said, is that Jesus took his humanity with him, right? So Jesus had said Mary's name thousands of times. She's, she spent the last three years, probably every day and every night, in this group with Jesus and she said, he said her name so many times. You know, we have a specific way that we say people's names that we love, right? When you answer the phone, it's your wife, your husband, you say something in a very particular way. I don't answer the phone the way my wife calls it, anybody else calls, right? And, and, and when I see my kids, I have a particular voice for them. Jesus had a particular way of saying Mary's name. He is a personal God. He is a personal Lord. He says her name in such a specific way and she immediately, can you imagine the elation, the joy in that second she realizes, my Lord, I can imagine it'd be kind of an amalgamation of excitement and disbelief and confusion and maybe some sickness and what in the world? How is this possible? My Lord, she says. I need you to see this second point here, okay? Not only is the resurrected Jesus uh, physical, you need to see him as personal. You need to see him as personal. If you're going to encounter the real resurrected Jesus, you need to encounter a personal Jesus that encounters you like a human. I love this. I love John's account. You know, in John 21, we won't get there, but Jesus does this really funny thing where he, he's resurrected. Peter and John and them haven't seen him yet. Or maybe, actually, I think they have seen him at this point, but regardless, he walks up on the bank. They don't know he's him, and they're fishing. And he calls out to him, How's the fishing? And they're like, crummy, rub it in. They don't know who he is. And then Jesus does this really, this really kind of sweet thing. He, he, he brings up an inside joke. He goes, throw the net on the other side. Ring a bell. 
And they throw the net on the other side, and they bring in all these fish. And Peter, dude, I love it. He's like, my Lord! And he throw, puts his coat on like you do and then jumps in the water, you know, and swims. And then Jesus has, he has, a, he has a meal waiting for them. And they eat a meal together because Jesus is physically resurrected. And I guarantee you, Jesus ate food. Okay? This idea in your head of the Star Wars thing with the floating Obi-Wan Kenobi in the side and he's not real, get rid of that. He's physical. He eats fish. He probably cooked them really well, too. This is a personal resurrected Christ. A human resurrected Christ. See, why, Sam, why is that so important? It's important because the resurrection reminds us that we now have a human interface. You know what an interface is? It's something that connects two things that don't normally connect. Jesus is our eternal human interface between humanity and divinity. We now know who the Father is. Jesus is the, listen, the ultimate language of God. We understand who the Father is now through Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. When you think of God, what do you picture? If it's anything other than Jesus, I would press on you. Jesus is the way that we know the Father. You want to know how God feels about something? How did Jesus act? What do we see in the Gospels? We see Jesus weeping. We see him broken over sin, but we see him also angry at false religion. We see him personal. We see him crack jokes. We see him be relatable. That's the God that we serve. And Jesus now is our eternal high priest. Listen to what Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 14. It says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is who Jesus has become because of the resurrection. He is our eternal high priest. You know, I love, you gotta ask the question, right? Why did Jesus make Mary the first person to witness the resurrection when she was the least credible person ever to be a witness. Okay? First of all, she was a woman. Don't throw anything at me. That's the way they thought then. Okay? Women were not credible witnesses in the first century. Sorry, that's not very inclusive, but that's the way it was. Okay? They were not credible witnesses. And secondly, Mary was the town crazy person. She was possessed. Everybody knew it. She had no credibility. Why would Jesus pick Mary to be the first person to show himself to. Can I suggest to you that it had nothing to do with a practical reason? It had everything to do, listen, with a personal reason. He loved Mary. And she is weeping. And he cares about that. The resurrected Jesus is a personal Jesus. He's a personal resurrected Jesus. He knows you. He knows your name. Jesus said, my sheep, hear my voice. And I call them by what? Their name. Jesus is calling Mary by her name. I love that. We must see the humanity of, of Christ. Verse 17, there's something else you need to see here. This is interesting. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Now, this is what Mary does. So she sees Rabbanai, my Lord. She does exactly what Mary, you would expect Mary to do. She falls at her feet and she embraces Jesus like she had done so many times. She, falls, she, she does what you would expect her to do. And Jesus does exactly the opposite of what you would expect him to do, which is classic Jesus, right? She embraces him, and he instantly says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
What are you talking about, Jesus? This is the same Jesus who, when Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha was mad because she was over there having to cook all by herself, Jesus said, hey, she's got the greater portion. Right? This is the same Jesus that when, when uh, a perfume was being poured out on his feet, he, he actually said, no, actually, this is, this is a good use of this. And now, all of a sudden, Mary's doing exactly what it seems like she should do, cling to Jesus, and Jesus says, nope, don't do it. Why? Why? Why is he doing that? Why is he saying that? It's so interesting. It's so interesting. Now, I would imagine that Mary, in her mind, is just thinking, everything's going to go back to the way it was. Right? Her clinging to Jesus, I think, is her physical reaction to what she's feeling, and that is, oh, the good old days are back. Jesus is back. We're going to get the troop together. Let's go get the disciples. Imagine now how many people are going to want to hear the gospel now that Jesus has rose from the dead. Oh, this is going to be great. I can't wait. And then Jesus goes, don't cling to me. I'm leaving. You're leaving? He says, I must ascend to the Father. Here's what you need to understand. You need to understand that the resurrection of Christ was not so that Jesus could go back to the way things were. Jesus came into this world to die. And he died to rise. And he rose to ascend to the right hand of the Father. Why? Because Jesus didn't have an interest in going back to the things, way things were. Jesus has an interest in the way things are going to be. And the way things are going to be will only happen if he takes the throne at the right hand of the Father takes the title deed to the cosmos, and starts running the show. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Mary, I know you want me to be here, but you don't understand. I need to go take my seat as King Jesus. Now, I stressed in the last point the humanity of Christ, but don't get it twisted. Jesus is human, but he's still God. Read Revelation. He's the king on the war horse. He's coming back. Taking the right hand of the father means he is equal in power to Yahweh. That means he's a star breather. And he will come back and make war on the nations. Jesus is not just the man. He is the God man. You error when you stress either of those realities too much. He is human. He is God. Believe both those things. He is personal, but he is powerful. And Jesus says, Mary, you don't understand. I need to ascend to the Father in order that all authorities and all angels and all powers, 1 Peter 3.21 says, will be subjected to me. Because Jesus is the king. He is the point of all of the universe. And the resurrection without the ascension is not good news. You know why? Because if Jesus is still here walking around, evil is still around, sin is still happening, pain is still happening, we need a full physical renovation, a full spiritual renovation to happen, and that will happen when Jesus returns and finally eliminates all sin and all evil and all death and all brokenness. Last week, we looked at the false coronation of Jesus. Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and a crowd accepted him as what they thought, at least, the king was going to be. What Jesus is saying is, no, Mary, I need to go to my real coronation. I need to go to the real moment where I truly become crowned as king. He is the powerful resurrected Jesus. And listen to me, this is important. A saving resurrection must include a powerful resurrected Jesus. If he's your homeboy, he's not your savior, okay? 
Jesus is your homeboy? That, that, that's, that's not really um, adequate. He's the king of the universe. He is a personal, kind king. But he is a powerful king. I love the, 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 the Narnia thing. You know, it's like, it's, it's um, the, the four kids come into Narnia and they say, who is this Aslan person? Is he safe? To which Beaver says, safe? <laughs> of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's good. He's not safe. But he is good. Make no mistake. So Jesus needs, his resurrection needs to be seen as physical, personal, powerful, and lastly, as pivotal. But go, Jesus says, but go to my brothers. He tells Mary, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, um, I want you to see how pivotal, my, my fourth point is here, how pivotal the resurrection is. It changes everything. And the reason that the resurrection is so powerful is because it solidifies and seals what happened the day before or two days before, three days before, on the cross. The resurrection proves what Jesus accomplished in payment on the cross. And John wants us to see that. And in fact, he's going to point out all of the things that are different now because of the resurrection. The first one here is right in verse 17. Notice what Jesus says to Mary. He says, go to my what? Brothers. You know what's really interesting? Jesus never called the disciples brothers before. Not in the Gospel of John. This is a first. This is something new. Something has changed. Something is different. He's saying, go tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father, my father and your father. Interesting. There's a familial thing happening here now. Before he called them disciples. Now he calls them brothers. What changed? What changed? I'll tell you what changed. The cross of Christ has made payment for sin. And the cross of Christ has made it possible for you and I, those who believe in the gospel, to become adopted and to become sons and daughters of the king. And you know what that means? Because we become brothers of Christ. Isn't that amazing? He calls them brothers. He calls you and I brothers and sisters. He says, I'm sending the Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, verse 18, I have seen the Lord. We know from other accounts they didn't believe her. A bunch of dorks, you know? They didn't believe her. And that he said these things to her in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Now, here's what's happening. They don't believe Mary. They don't really know what to think about all this. And they're hanging out behind locked doors. Why are they hanging out behind locked doors? Uh, because the Romans just killed their guy. <laughs> you know? I, I mean, it's like when, when, when the, the world, world ruling empire kills your leader, you're hiding. Okay? Because they're after you next, right? And that's what they're thinking. So they're hiding behind locked doors, and they don't know what's going on. There's this report going around um, that, that, that Jesus' body is missing. We got Mary telling us that she saw him, but what is she? she's kind of weird, and she's emotional and whatever. So, you know, so what do, we don't really know what to think about here. So the doors are locked, and for the fears of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, first word out of Jesus' mouth, I love it, peace be with you. That's significant. First thing Jesus says when he shows up is peace, shalom. Now, I know that that was a standard greeting at the time, but there's a little more to it. Jesus has just accomplished eternal peace. It is finished. The first word out of his mouth is peace. You see the pivotal change here? Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. I love that the first thing Jesus does 
is he shows them his hands and he shows them his side. Now, I know there's a practical reason for that. Okay, maybe this guy just looks like Jesus, right? Well, no, he's got the holes. He's got the holes. Why does he have the holes, by the way? Why does he have the holes? Just because we get new bodies doesn't mean we won't still have remembrance of things that have happened in this world. Okay? Now, this is the side note. But what I love here, and what I want you to see, is that the first thing that Jesus wants them to get is what happened on the cross. You guys need to put your hands in the holes. You need to understand what just happened on the cross. It is finished. It is paid and full. And we don't have a dead sacrifice. We have a risen king. Put your hands in the holes. Experience what Jesus paid for you. It is paid in full. He spent his life for you. And the first thing he wants the disciples to get is that. Get it. And if you want to get saved, if you want salvation, you have to put your hands in the holes of the Messiah and understand that those holes were for you. They were for you. He died for you. You're not a victim. You're a perpetrator, and Jesus paid your debt with the holes in his hands. The disciples were glad. They saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now that's significant. There's a new thing happening here. Now Jesus says, Hey, the way I came to you, now you're going to go to the world. Just like I was sent by the Father, I'm sending you. Role reversal. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Why is that significant? Because part of the reason Jesus spent his blood was so that he could give the ultimate gift of the power of the Holy Spirit. And I can just imagine, you ever you know, wake up on Sunday morning and you just can't wait for your kids to open the thing that you got them because you know they're going to love it? This is Jesus on resurrection days. He says, guys, here's a taste of what's coming on Pentecost. I can't wait to give you the gift that I just spent my life for, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift. It's not a tube. He's not a substance. He is a person, a powerful person, and Jesus spent his blood to give you that spirit, the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. You might ask the question, well, wait a minute, what's the difference between this and Pentecost? The difference is this is little bits of water popping through the dam, and in a few days at Pentecost, the dam will burst, and the Holy Spirit will be gushing out through the early church, and it will spread across the entire face of the earth because the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit through the church, is world transformational power. That's what's about to happen, and Jesus just gives them a foretaste of it. And then he gives them this ability to speak forgiveness. Not to give forgiveness, but to speak forgiveness. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here's my fourth point. I need you to see that the resurrection of Jesus is pivotal. It changes everything. You know what pivotal means? It means pivot. You're turning. Everything's different now. Because Jesus has resurrected, everything's changed. Everything is different. This is such good news. And lastly, I need you to see one more thing. And that is that I need you to see the resurrection of Jesus as provable. As provable. Notice this last section here. Now, Thomas. I'm so thankful for Thomas, by the way. We give him a hard time, you know, poor guy. Um, forever, you know, you, you make one mistake and your name is forever doubting. You're, you're that guy, you know. It's like you're the, that, uh, that movie, um, um, oh, gosh. So what happens when I bring something that was in my notes. Um, 
What's the movie where he, the kid dies and, and he goes into Coco, you know? And the, and, and the main guy, they call him Chorizo. It's his name because he choked on a piece of Chorizo, and that's his name forever. He's like, really, guys? Because I died? You know. so, so it's like Thomas, the poor guy, is forever doubting Thomas. He's never going to live it down, you know? Uh, but I'm thankful for him. On the evening of that day, pardon me, verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He went down to the supermarket to get some ice cream. Terrible timing. While he's gone, everybody gets to see the resurrected Jesus. Thomas gets back and they're like, Thomas, we saw the resurrected Jesus. And he's like, what? First Mary and now you guys? Are you kidding me? And Thomas, like any rational human being goes, you guys are full of it. I don't believe you. Okay, now we could look at that and criticize him, but the reality is I'm really thankful for Thomas because what that shows us, first of all, is it shows us that the disciples were credible. They weren't idiots. They weren't gullible. They weren't just ready to swallow anything that was given to them. Thomas is critical. He's a critical thinker. He's like, I don't believe it, not unless I put my hands in his. You guys got to put your hands in the holes. Unless I see that, I'm not going to believe. It gives great credibility. It gives great, great credibility. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands and mark the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, okay, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, and although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. I love this scene. I was listening to a, a pastor friend of mine preach on this, and he's like, he's like, you just can't imagine it. It had to be this way. It had to be this way. Jesus walks in, and the first thing they look at is Jesus, and then the next thing they look at is Thomas, and then everybody kind of parts and an aisle forms, right? And, and it's like, oh, this is going to be good. What's Jesus going to say? Like, what's he going to do, right? Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. The doors were locked. Jesus came in and stood among them. Peace be with you, 27. Then he said to them, or he said to Thomas, he goes right to Thomas. He says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now I want you to note something here. I want you to notice that even though Thomas was skeptical, Jesus still showed up. See, Jesus loves to interact with our doubts, as long as they're authentic doubts. There's a difference between hiding behind doubt. There's a difference between the person that doesn't want to deal with sin in their life and says, well, I don't believe in Jesus, when in reality they just don't want to make him Lord. There's a difference between that and the person that is authentically and genuinely skeptical. And what I love about our Lord is that he takes the time to come back just for Thomas, just for him, just for one guy. You, know, th- you notice how many times in John's account Jesus shows up just for one person? He shows up just for Mary, just for Thomas. Okay, Jesus wants to show up just for you. Okay, Just for you. The resurrected Jesus is going to and will encounter you if you really truly want to know the truth. And I love that Jesus does that. I love that he's so personal in that way. And notice what Jesus says. Actually, first, you need to notice what Thomas says, because this is really important. After Thomas puts his hand in the holes, Thomas answered him, listen, my Lord and my God. Wow, I'm thankful for those four words. Because there are a lot of people that would like to tell you that Jesus is just a historical figure and that the disciples didn't really believe he was God. That was something that was made up later by desperate Christians trying to get power. Listen to me. 
Thomas called him God. You think, is that clear enough? And he didn't just call him God. He called him Lord, Curios. He said, you are the boss. You're the Messiah. You're the king. You are the master. And you are God. A true proclamation of the deity and the power of Christ only comes with a true encounter with the physical resurrected Jesus. And true salvation only comes when you declare that he is king. If Jesus to you is just a way to heaven, if Jesus to you is just your friend, if Jesus to you is just a great idea or a nice nostalgic feeling, he cannot and will not save you. He must be your Lord and your God. He is the God-man. He is sovereign. And Thomas, <laughs> Thomas is just so stoked. He doesn't care that he just looked like a doofus. He doesn't care. He's just so stoked. My Lord and my God. And then listen to what Jesus says to him. Jesus says something implicit and something explicit. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's two things that I need you to see here. First of all, you need to see that, that Jesus is telling Thomas, Thomas, you could have believed without seeing me. The credible eyewitness of the disciples was enough for you. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because you and I don't get to have the experience Thomas had. Okay? We don't. And what Jesus is doing is he's, he's making sure that future generations of Christians understand that it is appropriate for you as a rational human to believe a credible eyewitness account of hundreds of credible eyewitnesses that Jesus did, in fact, raise. And not only is it, he implies that, but what's, what's explicit here and what is absolutely clear is that there is a blessing in believing when you haven't actually put your hand in the holes. There is a blessing for that. It's called faith. It's called saving faith. And for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been having saving faith in the credible eyewitness account of the resurrection of Jesus. My question for you this morning is, have you encountered this resurrected Jesus? Have you had this encounter? Is he your Lord and your God? Can the Jesus that you worship save you? Or is he just a nice man? Is he a great idea? Is he a cosmic, powerful, saving, eternal Jesus? That is the Jesus that these disciples encountered, the physical Jesus, King Jesus, the personal Jesus, the powerful Jesus, the pivotal Jesus, the Jesus that changed them forever. And if the gospel, if everything I'm saying to you is not life-changing for you, it's because you're not believing it. I want you to see the last thing John says here because it's really important. He says in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. Now, we know there's other accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, but there's even more things than that written that weren't written. But these are written, now listen, John's gonna tell you why he wrote all this down. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life. And that's not just the absence of death. That is... Eternal shalom, thriving, zoe, life, peace in his name. John says, the reason we wrote this stuff down, the reason that we recorded the resurrection is because if you believe it, if you believe Jesus is the son of God, you will have life, both now and eternally. That's the promise. The resurrection can and will transform you.
Let me just end with three quick things that I want you to take note of. How do we experience that true resurrected Jesus? How do we experience that? Okay, let me just suggest three things. First of all, I want you to start looking where you are because that's where Jesus will find you. What do I mean by that? Well, the first thing that popped out of me in John chapter 20 is the fact that Jesus comes to the disciples. You know what false religion tells you? It tells you transcend. Find your way up the mountain. Keep getting reincarnated over and over again until you achieve karmic consciousness. Do yoga every morning on your head, drink, sipping, you know, mate, you know, or whatever, you know. Drink quad shots and Red Bull at the same time, you know, in your underwear and, and whatever. Okay, whatever your religion is, it's, it's transcend. Find, go find the divine, okay? What I love about this is that Jesus finds them. He goes to them. And he goes to them individually and differently and indistinctly. He finds Mary in her tears alone. He finds disciples in their fears, terrified. He, he finds people behind locked doors. You think you've got some locked doors in your life? Jesus will walk through them. Seriously. And he does it graciously and kindly and patiently. But that locked door, he'll get through it. He'll get through it. He meets you where you're at. The resurrected Jesus meets you where you're at because he's good like that. See, our uh, Christianity is not make your way up the mountain. Christianity is God came down the mountain and he's bringing you up. He found you. So it's not about going and finding some transcendent experience. It's about realizing that Jesus has risen and he is present. Okay? I want you to see that. The second thing I want you to see is I want you to start. Hold on, let me figure this out. You, you, might, you might ask the question, okay, but I don't get to see the resurrected body of Jesus, so what about me? That happened 2,000 years ago, okay? The New Testament makes it clear that the resurrection of Jesus' body lives on. You say, how? It's called the church, okay? I'm not going to go there because we don't have time, but Ephesians chapter 4 makes a very clear case that the resurrected body of Jesus continues, and it's called the church. It's where the Spirit of God lives, it's where the gospel is proclaimed. And so if you want to encounter the resurrection life of Jesus, press into his body. And I would, I would challenge you, I would encourage you, I would challenge our congregation. Can we truly be the gospel? Can people see the resurrection life of Christ in the way that we love each other here at this church? If you're new and you're visiting and you're not sure about this Christianity thing, press in because this body is the continuation of the resurrection of Christ. Animated by the Holy Spirit. And lastly, I just want to make one very obvious point. And that is to access the resurrection life of Christ, you have to believe. Faith is the entrance point. You have to believe. At some point, you have to believe or not believe. And it's the most important decision you'll ever make. It has eternal consequences. Because Jesus has ascended, and he ascended so that he could come back. And when he comes back, it's over. Either you believe or you don't. The call of this passage, the call of John chapter 20 is to believe. And the call of John 20 is to hold and behold and encounter the physical resurrected Jesus. You know, you may have heard about Christianity, you may have heard about the Bible, you may have heard about Jesus, but I'm just encouraging you, like I said in my introduction, if you do not hold and behold the true resurrected Christ, it will not transform you. So that's my encouragement to you. Press into that. Seek him. Uh, you know, if, if you would want to talk about this more, if you would like to understand what salvation means and what it means to put your faith in him, um, I'm going to be around. Talk to me. There are lots of people around you that would love to talk to you.
if you're curious about that. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you so much for the resurrection. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we have such a good gospel to preach, such a good gospel to believe. But thank you for the hope that we have. This world is falling apart. The wheels are coming off. Things are bad. They've always been bad, but they're getting worse. And I'm just so thankful that our hope's not here. Our hope is not in a, in a, in a political party. It's not in a political person. It's not in a, in a, in a, in a, a, a package, a $2 trillion package. It's not in a, uh, anything. It's not any of those things. Our hope is in the resurrected Jesus. And Lord, we're just thankful for that. We could celebrate that this morning. So God, as we turn our attention now to you in worship, I pray that God, we would lift our hands knowing that it is finished, that you, Jesus, in your resurrection is the seal, is the proof that payment has been made, that we are free, that we are adopted, that your spirit lives within us, and that we have eternity to look to. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.